Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Very good evening. Uh, it's so wonderful to see so many beautiful faces. Look at you all. Amazing. A full house. Um, so 400 of us here together today um, to listen to our esteemed speakers and over a thousand people online. Um, so this really... Um, so we're here tonight at our event Transnational Anti-Gender Politics and Resistance. I'm Claire Hemmings and I'm Professor of Feminist Theory here at the Department of Gender Studies at LSE. <laughs> I'm also co-convener with Professor Sumi Madhok of the AHRC Network Transnational Anti-Gender Movements, Narratives and Resistance, which is co-hosting this keynote panel as part of our two-day conference, together with LSE Gender as part of its 30th anniversary celebrations. Another Um, so here's what will happen this evening. In a moment, I'll introduce our speakers, who will speak for about 30 minutes each, and then respond briefly to one another, should they wish, leaving around 30 to 40 minutes for questions, including for online guests. For ex-users, the hashtag for today's event is um, hashtag LSEAHRCGender. And this event is being recorded and will, I've been told, hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. <laughs> and so to our event itself, transnational anti-gender politics and resistance. As anti-gender movements become more prominent globally, intellectual and political actors are faced with new challenges about how to understand the centrality of anti-feminist and anti-LGBTQ backlashes as pivotal for populist movements or enhanced state security, about the relationship between anti-gender aggression and anti-migrant, racist or settler colonial violence that shape our contemporary world, and, importantly, about the forms of feminist, queer and decolonial resistance that might be needed or, or are already underway to counter what many people have termed new fascist politics. Who better, of course, to help us understand some of these questions than our esteemed guests here tonight, Tuba Said and Judith Butler. We've asked them to think with us about both the nature of anti-gender context and how to generate political solidarity at political, epistemic and or ethical levels. Uh, Tuba Said is a grassroots political organiser and gender researcher. She is a founding member and secretary of information and publishing of the socialist feminist collective organisation Women Democratic Front. The group was founded with an aim to involve working-class women in political struggle and ensure their representation at all levels. Sayed has been involved in feminist and left-wing organising in Pakistan and across South Asia since 2012, including the Landless Peasants Movement and Okara Women's <clears throat> Resistance Movement, 
and International Women's Day marches. She works as a feminist researcher, trainer, campaigner, writer and teacher in the areas of gender studies, gender-based violence, feminist education and climate change adaptation and worked for three years until 2018 at the Centre for Excellence for Gender Studies, um, University of Islamabad. Judith Butler is Distinguished Professor of the Graduate School and former Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and the Programme of Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. They were the founding director of the Critical Theory Programme and International Consortium of Critical Theory Programmes at UC Berkeley. Butler is active in gender and sexual politics, human rights, anti-war politics, and serves on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace. Professor Butler has been an inspiration to many of us over their career, from their field-changing gender trouble, through multiple interventions into political, psychic and social life, to the imminent Who's Afraid of Gender, they'll be talking today to the title Fascist Passions. So could we welcome our guests and then I'll pass over to you. over to you. Um, I would um, like to begin my talk by giving a small disclaimer. Uh, I'm not an academic. <laughs> I'm basically a grassroots organizer, as you heard from Claire. Um, so um, I also, um, another acknowledgement that I would like to make is, um, is the space that I'm present in. Um, I'm from Pakistan, which means um, the UK was once a colonizer. Uh, of my country, and I think um, it's it's difficult for me to be here, um, both emotionally and quite literally. Um, I was uh, my visa was rejected the last time I tried to come to this country on the invitation of LSE, uh, on the grounds that I will not leave the UK. Um, funnily, it came from a state which did not leave my country for over 100 years. <laughs> uh, uh, and I promise to leave very soon. Uh, so um, thanks to uh, the persistence of uh, Professor Claire and Professor Sumi, uh, and also their bravery <laughs> to get me uh, here. So um, thank you to them very much for um, you know, staying persistent. Thank you. Uh, and making sure that I finally make it here. Um, the topic of uh, my talk today uh, will be the feminist movement in Pakistan. Uh, primarily the contemporary feminist movement in Pakistan, which uh, has its, you know, its roots in the 2010s. Um, it's a fairly young movement, um, and it's important for me to talk about this movement and its formation because um, that's how we'll come to the anti-gender politics that's forming in Pakistan today. Um, for the contemporary feminist movement uh, in Pakistan at this point has become very controversial. Um, it shouldn't be, uh, but it is, and there are reasons why it has come to that point, uh, and I'll come to that in a bit. Um, it has uh, received backlash from the right wing uh, initially, uh, the society in general, and also from the state itself. Um, it began um, in 2018 uh, when feminists across Pakistan, especially in the three major cities, Karachi, Islamabad and Lahore, um, decided to march on the International Working Women's Day 
uh, to commemorate the International Working Women's Day. Um, the movement was spontaneous. Uh, we didn't plan that we were going to march. Uh, some of us were inspired by the Women's March in the US, while the rest of us, like myself, uh, were basically just launching uh, the organization I belong to, which is the Women Democratic Front. Um, and it just happens to be that it all happened on the same day. Um, you know, um, and for the, this movement was born I say it was spontaneous um, because the decade before that, Pakistan did not have a visible, vibrant feminist movement. Um, and the reason for that was that most of the feminist politics, we used to call it women's empowerment, was donor funded. Um, so the movement was highly depoliticized. Um, the conversations were happening behind closed doors. Uh, there were conversations about capacity building. Uh, and women's empowerment, but really, not really about, you know, birthing a feminist politics uh, in our context. And much of um, the young people, so this movement comprises of young urban middle class women, at least uh, when it started. And um, much of the, uh, you know, at the time, because there was an absence of a visible feminist movement in the country, our inspirations were basically our mothers and foremothers um, and the various kind of negotiations they made uh, with patriarchy. They were very precise negotiations. Sometimes they were defying it and other times they were um, conforming to it, which taught us that there was no one way to be a woman. Um, and, and that's how we came to be on the streets. Um, Interestingly, uh, the movement in its nascent stages had very little to do with gender identity. Uh, we, however, started by just, you know, talking about what was going on in our homes. Uh, we were talking about um, questioning gender roles and gendered labor in our homes, in our offices, uh, in our public spaces. Um, in 2019, the movement picked up pace. Uh, more and more people started joining it. Um, and it was at that time that a backlash started online first. Um, but it was 2020 uh, when there were physical attacks on the movement, especially for those of us who were based in Islamabad, uh, primarily because the movement was much more politicized in the capital. They don't like having that sort of stuff in the capital. Um, so um, what happened was that the right wing blamed the movement uh, of being anti-family, uh, anti-religion, and also anti-society. Um, why it was labeled as such was the b women taking part in these discourses were questions, questioning um, gender division of labor at home. Um, and for the first time uh, in the history of the feminist movement in Pakistan, the women were laying, laying bare their wounds, uh, something which was considered both a secret and sacred. They spoke of what happened behind closed doors in their kitchens and in their bedrooms. This discourse gave rise to a particular kind of body politics in Pakistan, which was not uh, very prominent in the earlier movement in the country in the 80s and 90s. Um, and um, there, was, there was talk about bodily autonomy in the feminist movement prior to this as well, but that was mostly around legislation and state and you know, the processes of the construction of a woman that the state takes on. It was never really about the home and the private sphere. Um, in the context of Pakistan, it's important to note that 
um, for example, domestic violence is still not criminalized in Pakistan. So as a woman, you have rights outside your home. Inside the home, it's all a private matter. So that is why this movement was considered so radical, because it was bringing that home in the that private sphere in the public sphere. Um, so women were bringing their pain uh, to the public square. Um, what was new that this time, um, they were talking about gender division of labors at home, the exploitation of their bodies behind closed doors, marital rape, sexual violence, and also eventually about sexuality. Um, and we, 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 did, we did not talk about sexuality before that because it was too controversial. Uh, but because we had kind of a break from the movement of the yesteryears, we didn't know we were not supposed to talk about sexuality, so we just did, right? Um, <laughs> the home and private sphere was not this was not this political before that, and the body was never a topic of politics. Um, and that's when the state was alerted to the movement um, and what the movement was doing. Most of the people involved in the movement, as I shared, was urban middle class women, and um, what. It meant then was that these urban middle class women were also the daughters of the state makers. Um, and these conversations then got to their homes, which was very scary. Um, and suddenly we see that it generated a moral panic in the society. And who knows better about moral panic than the UK itself? Um, <laughs> So one of the most uh, popular slogans uh, that came out of the movement was Apna Khana Khud Garam Karlo, which basically translates to warm your own food. Um, sounds really simple. We were just asking men to warm your own food and we're not going to warm it up for you, but apparently it was very radical. Um, the movement was accused of ignoring women's actual real issues while focusing on smaller things. Um, and it was accused of making women leave their rightful places within the family, including um, you know, making women rebellious, not obedient enough, um, the moral outrage against the women who want, wanted a right over their body kept growing. The other popular slogan that came after, out of the movement was Mera Jism Meri Merzi, um, which basically means my body, my right, and it's, it's not, it's not understood at the same way in Pakistan, like you know, it's understood in other parts of the world as a pro-choice uh, pro uh, slogan. This was basically just about having autonomy over your body, whether it's about gender division of labor, whether it's about making decisions about who you want to marry, about sexuality. So it was just a slogan which covered all these different aspects of our lives. Um, there were, um, so what, what happened after this was, as the movement started growing, um, the Khwaja Sera community, which is the indigenous transgender community of Pakistan, um, along with the queer and trans folks, and I make these just differentiations because a lot of, a lot of the people who identify as trans and queer are basically have very different sort of, um, how do you say, conceptualizations about this as compared to the Khwaja Sera community, which is much more spiritual in, in how they understand their identity. Um, and, th this, um, and when they started expressing their own demands within this movement, uh, the context started changing. So the society which, and the right wing, which was initially anti-feminist, 
was now started to become anti-gender um, because they could see that there are people who identify as queer, as transgender, as non-binary were coming to the city squares and talking about this. Um, and th there were growing attacks on the right to gender identity at this time as well, which was not just seen as a threat to society, but also as a threat to heteropatriarchy, society, the institution of family, um, the nation itself. Um, and it's, it's important to note that in the context of Pakistan, um, there, there are many cases that you can find, but in the context of Pakistan, and I'm sure in many other contexts, uh, family is seen as the primary unit, uh, which is responsible for the construction of a woman, for the, you know, the primary unit which is responsible for the construction of the nation state. Um, so this was seen as a big threat that now these women are no longer even identifying as women, so what is going on here? Um, and that is where you know, the violence started increasing and this also resulted um, in physically, physical attacks. Um, it resulted in state-sanctioned violence against feminists in the country in which many were physically attacked through, um, you know, physically attacked and also attacked through dangerous court cases. Um, our Prime Minister at the time, uh, Imran Khan, who's also I think in the West known as a revolutionary, um, we know him as a populist authoritarian, accused feminism as being a Western idea um, and also said it's anti-family to ignite basically hatred and violence and at the same time the feminists were dealing with all these different cases that were filed against them. The Friday sermons in the mosques um, regularly spoke against the ongoing feminist movement in the country weeks before and after the women's marches and this is still happening, inciting rage and fear within the society. This incitement was easy um, because of the struggles and frustrations of people who've long been dehumanized themselves. So it was also that you know, the general society was also channeling a lot of their frustrations through this anti-gender, anti-feminist sort of emotion. Um, and someone at a panel earlier were talking about how the Islamophobia in the Western countries uh, resulted in queerphobia at home. And this is also, and I think they were talking about Lebanon, and this is also true for Pakistan. So this was also a form of right-wing, anti-colonial sort of struggle. And that is how they were seeing this, that we are fighting the Western ideas, the same West, which is Islamophobic. Um, in, in the West itself. Um, they saw gender as a threat to family, to masculinity, because in the growing economic insecurity, what was also happening, that the role of the man uh, was decreasing. Uh, you know, the man could no longer provide the security, uh, financial security that was supposed to provide. So it also, the anti-gender, anti-feminist sentiment also found a lot of support because of that. Um, the moral panic was built on the idea that those who were uninhibited by the bounds of their biological status at birth, heteropatriarchy and also heterosexuality, marriage and family, um, were basically a threat to everything, um, basically the entire idea of who we are as people. Um, following this initial, these initial attacks, there has been an increase in violence against gendered bodies in the last few years. 
um, colonial tropes of trans people and indigenous Khwaja Sira community as criminals and immoral people are now part of the public discourse, which was something we had not seen in the country. Um, social media moral entrepreneurs are now making a living out of anti-gender politics. Um, they are right-wing men doing podcasts, exposing the movement, especially the trans leaders in the movement. Networks of disinformation have been taking over the public discourse and the movement uh, and the, about the movement. Now this anti-gender movement is uh, spreading. So there's a popular cis woman in Pakistan, um, an elite fashion designer. We were just talking about it, um, Maria B, who's formed a group which is known as the Mothers of the Nation, Mothers of the Nation, or Mothers of Pakistan. Um, and basically, um, she started this movement where elite women are coming together, fighting against gender. Um, and this happened as a result of a transgender person who was. Um, invited for a talk at one of her child's school. Um, so now there's, you know, the mothers of Pakistan are fighting against the trans uh, movement in the country. Um, she regularly organizes talks, holds conversations, mostly through social media to talk about this threat. And interestingly, she is also now um, working and coordinating uh, along with the right wing within the country. Um, now I come to the point of what is to be done. Uh, um, it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to talk about, but I think this is probably the only thing I really do know. Um, and I, I think it might sound a bit prescriptive, uh, so I'm, I'm, excuse me for that. Uh, but I be believe there is something that we can learn from the right, uh, especially in terms of their transnational work, which is at this point almost global. Um, we see right wing in Pakistan, for example, quoting Andrew Tate. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, J.K. Rowling and conservative right-wing politicians from the U.S. and TERFs in their podcast. When the attacks began, it not just attacked the feminist leaders, but it also attacked the men of the left, um, my comrades who were working with me. Um, it was very clear to us that they all know that in order uh, to in order to take one of us down, they'll have to take all of us down. And I think that is where it's important that we learn from this. Um, the most radical push against the anti-gender movement actually came for the, from the Khwaja Sira movement itself. Um, instead of backing off what the Khwaja Sira movement did, they started organizing their own marches, which is called the Murat March um, in Pakistan. Murat um, as a word is a combination of two Urdu words, Mart and Aurat. Mart means men. Or it means women. So murat uh, is basically a term that many Khwaja Sira transgender people use for themselves. Uh, now we have annual murat marches in the country. Um, as a result, um, as a result, many murats have been killed in the country. It, it's not been. Um, you know, it's, it's not like that it didn't have repercussions. It did have consequences for the people who are part of the movement. Um, but it's interesting that they've employed religion because they consider themselves to be a spiritual community. Um, they have kinship networks. They have their own language, which is called the Hijra Farsi, which was basically, um, the, this language came into being during the colonial times uh, when the Criminal Tribes Act was enacted in India. Um, and they, they, they basically have started inviting the urban, middle-class, transgender, and queer people into their folds to offer them protection. And this is something they've been doing for centuries now. Um, and in their, in their discourses, they use um, religion, history, faith, 
anti-colonialism. Um, there, um, the, the movement speaks of the pre-colonial India, not as, I mean, not saying that it was a utopia, the pre-colonial India, but they're using it. Um, they're also uh, talking about the status of the Khwaja Siraz in, in the period before colonization. They're showing up for the cause of uh, Baloch in Pakistan against the militarization and securitization of their land. They're showing up for the restoration of student unions. They're showing up for cis women going through domestic and sexual violence. They're protesting for democratic rights of other groups while fighting for their own right to a dignified life. This must show us a way forward. We are living in very difficult times. Uh, we inhabit a brutalized and a brutalizing world. With the climate catastrophe, the settler colonialism, imperialism, the growing class inequalities, the violent heteropatriarchy, the anti-gender movement, the list is very long. Um, it is very clear that we no longer have the choice to prioritize one fight over another. And I'm here, here I'm particularly talking to the left, um, but also talking to those who are fighting for the right for gender identity to be recognized for the right to life. It has to be a collective fight, in my opinion. Um, it is no longer a fight which, you know, um, no longer a debate about which fight is primary and which is secondary and which is tertiary and which comes after the revolution um, and which one to fight first and second. I think we have to take it, take all of them on together. Um, we can no longer afford to, to do this, you know, play this oppression Olympics. It's too late for that. Um, I would also urge all of you sitting here to look outside of Europe and America, um, to also look at the br brutalized bodies of those of us who are not part of your discourses and narratives. Um, we have been fighting um, from the very beginning. The very beginning of the, these moral hysterias and moral panic lies in the Victorian era and the colonial era. Um, it began with the colonization in our part of the world. Um, in 2021, Pakistan suffered from one of the worst floods in the history of the country. And hundreds and thousands who suffered and continue to suffer in its aftermath even today were victims of not just climate change, but also colonization. Um, that used our lands as experimental grounds for testing out their barrages and dams to French and British engineers uh, who tried to restrict um, our rivers, enclose our rivers, discipline their flows, just like they tried to restrict and discipline our bodies to fit into their ideas of morality. Um, we are also the victims of imperialist financial institutions that bid hydro infrastructures such as the left bank outfall drainage, and I leave it up to you to look up what that is. That is a form of solidarity, I believe, in my country with the World Bank funding, um, again, built by American engineering firms that changed the course of rivers again. As a result, the right-wing organizations who have so much more resources than the left and were doing the aid work did not provide support to the Shias and the Khwaja Siraz in my country. They do not see us as different. They see us all as enemies. Our fight then has to be not just about reacting and responding to this, but organizing in the face of all of this. And I think it's very important, and I, my comrade Alia was speaking about it earlier in her um, intervention. I think it's important to understand that we don't have to react and respond, we have to organize. Um, and I think it's very, for me, it's been very important to make this distinction between activism and organizing. 
Uh, for me, activism basically means to show up, to raise your voice, uh, to say something and perhaps then disappear. But organizing requires um, you know, long-term commitments. It's tedious, it's boring, it's not, it's not always fun. Um, and I think that's what the world needs right now. Um, and I think it's, I've been looking at, um, you know, the protests in London for Palestine and, you know, I've been wondering why is something not coming out of this? There's so many people out there. Um, and I think this is primarily the reason, maybe, in my opinion, um, that there's too much activism, but nobody's organizing. We all show up for protests, shout. Um, so, you know, we, um, we show up at these protests, it makes us feel good about them ourselves, that we've done something, and then we go back into our silos, and I think these fights cannot happen in these silos. Um, we have to come out of these silos, and I, um, I, I at the same time, um, the, the outpouring on the roads and the, you know, the mobilizations are also giving me a lot of hope, and I, I'm sure it's, it's true for everyone here. Um, I also believe that, um, um, for us who live in the third world, um, Palestine is a symbol of third world internationalism and anti-imperialism. Um, and that is why it is so important for most of us to show off for it. Um, to see how we understand the, you know, uh, Sorry, <laughs> we've all been, I, I think what, what's happening with, with capitalism, what happens that yes, there is an economic crisis, there's all these different crises, but there's also a crisis of imagination which we don't take that seriously. Um, the, and, and I think we are all suffering from this analysis paralysis, uh, where we overanalyze things instead of understanding that what we really need is radical compassion to build solidarities, to build networks, to build, you know, to build organizations that will um, fight um, you know, our, our own states, but also um, build a global international, internationalist politics which works for most of us. Um, and I, I, I think um, it, it will not just be built by you know, us talking to each other, um, but I think it's also important that while we fight there, it's important that you fight here. Um, because so much of what happens in our countries um, is based on what happens in your countries. Uh, and this is, I'm, I'm not uh, saying this to, you know, uh, say that my state does not have any responsibility. I, I know I'm very aware of the kind of violence it inflicts on its own people and also its, uh, its neighboring countries. Um, I have a strong and firm belief um, that this world order can no longer sustain itself. It is crumbling. Uh, as much as we want to think that the right wing is getting stronger, we should also see and look at the panic that they're going through. Um, and I feel it's, 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 it's us who are not coming out of our crisis of imagination that we're not being able to see that how it's crumbling. Um, and I, we can imagine that, you know, it is going to, Go, go and end, and we shall see the day where the powers that be will fall. Um, to keep the hope alive, um, I'm ending my talk um, with a poem by Fez. I'm not going to translate. Um, I'm not going to translate it because I think you could show up for me by looking up on Google. Uh, it's a poem by Fez Amit Fez, and it's called "Ham Dekhenge." Um, it goes like, Hum dekhenge, lazim hai ke hum bhi dekhenge, hum dekhenge. Wo din ke jiska vada hai, hum dekhenge. 
जो लोहे अजल में लिखा है हम देखेंगे हम देखेंगे मीन्स वी शैल सी जब जुल्मों सितम के कोहे गां रूई की तरह उड़ जाएंगे हम महकूमों के पाँव तले ये धरती धड़ धड़ धड़केगी और अहले हकम के सरों पर जब बिजली कड़ कड़ कड़केगी हम देखेंगे लाजिम है कि हम भी देखेंगे जब अर्ज खुदा के काबे से सब बुत उठवाए जाएंगे हम अहले सफा मरदूद हरम मसनत पे बिठाए जाएंगे सब ताज उछा ले जाएंगे सब तख्त गिराए जाएंगे हम देखेंगे लाजिम है कि हम भी देखेंगे बस नाम रहेगा अल्लाह का जो गायब भी है हाजिर भी है जो मंजर भी है नाजिर भी है उठेगा अनल हक का नारा जो मैं भी हूँ और तुम भी हो और राज करेगी खल के खुदा जो मैं भी हूँ और तुम भी हो हम देखेंगे लाजिम है कि हम भी देखेंगे वो दिन के जिसका वादा है थैंक यू सो मच Wow. I think we should take a moment. <laughs> Thank you so much for an amazing intervention and um this has got to be one of those opportunities where um I get to say to you tough act to follow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh and um and follow it you will. Okay. <laughs> uh first of all thank you to I think we're all uh enormously moved by your political commitment and uh your reminding us that it's not enough to complain and criticize and show up here and there but we have to be part of organizations with clear commitments and and stay in them um uh no matter what the difficulties might sometimes be and i know there are many um uh, but it's a great honor to be here with you and um yeah i kind of feel like just you know we could just tear this up <laughs> have a conversation i don't know but if you you said you're not an academic but actually you know if you ever wanted to be one it wouldn't be that hard of a transition you just <laughs> uh be super thoughtful and uh enormously moving i think for all of us uh, maybe it's just me but i suspect that some of you may share this sense state violence against people who are either rightless or struggling to acquire recognizable and durable rights used to be conducted under the name of another value they said it was not violence but legitimate force used by the state to defend the nation or the idea of the nation they said it was not violence but a way of defending the rights who of those who deserve to have rights there were many ways to twist the arguments that state violence gave as rationale for its death dealing powers and the systematic way that people of color were targeted say by the prison system we were able to call it hypocrisy or a lie 
we could expose its ruse and get on with the business of expanding alliances of resistance. But as we can see in the genocide now waged against the Palestinian people of Gaza, the exhibition of mass violence, of unthinkable cruelty, offers no excuse and does not to pretend to be anything other than shameless brutality. Of course, yes, the Israeli state claims it's not committing genocide, but not because of the nature of the violence it inflicts, but because somehow, because genocide was conducted against the Jewish people, it is now obscene, their word, to claim that the Israeli state is committing genocide. But they are. Of course, it matters that atrocities were committed by Hamas on October 7th, but that should hardly keep us from naming the massive killing of innocent lives that has happened every day against Palestinians since that day. Nor does it keep us from understanding the current violence and attempted expulsion of the people of Gaza as part of a long history of dispossession, bombardment, maiming, and traumatization that is part of the history of Palestine since the onslaught of Zionist settlers prior to 1948, culminating in a Nakba that now takes a new form in genocide. One can explain Israeli state and military power in many ways, but I would suggest that fascism is there, not only in the way that settlers are given guns and authorization to act as rogue militias on the West Bank, but in the twisting and breaking of all laws in the, in the pursuit of murderous exhilaration. Without, without drawing strict parallels between several global scenes of rights stripping, I want to point to the lack of regret, reluctance, the absence of any recourse to moral alibi, not only in the stripping of rights, but in the exposure of people identified as a distinct social or racialized group to starvation, injury, loss of limb, loss of life. The term trauma hardly works anymore to describe this situation, which challenges the very limits of thought. Yet, think we must, and speak and act. Of course, genocidal murder is not the same as rights stripping, but once stripped of basic rights, a subject is exposed without protection to debilitating and potentially fatal forms of power. We have seen soldiers and militants celebrating murder, but we are also seeing right-wing activists and politicians celebrating rights stripping. They are not the same, but the accelerated normalization of rights stripping can lead to fascist political formations and exemplify the operation of what I'm calling fascist passions. In the US, fascists have called for the elimination of trans and non-binary people. What did they have in mind? Perhaps you know already these quotations. Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire, quote, 
for the good of society, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. That was spoken at CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference, in March of 23. That same gentleman previously suggested that there can be no genocide against trans, oh, actually, not previously, but subsequently suggested, that there can be no genocide against transgender people, his term, because they are, quote, not a legitimate category of being. He's, he's fighting with the wrong person here. <laughs> Such ontological wisdom from our most virulent critic, whose mastery of science and ontology both is suddenly on trial. He remarked, <clears throat> I quote, I don't know how you could have a genocide of transgender people because genocide refers to genes. It refers to genetics, he says. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it, it refers, sorry. I, you know, I try to take the criticism seriously, but occasionally you lose your mind in the middle. You do, you lose your mind in the middle. Okay, uh, it refers to genetics, he claims. It refers to biology. And the whole point of transgenderism, he continues, is that it has nothing to do with biology. Quote, nobody's calling to exterminate anybody because the other problem with that statement is that transgender people is not a real ontological category. It's not a legitimate category of being." End quote. As you know, it's one thing to say that biology determines who we are and quite another to say that biology is in the mix of who we are and what we become. The opposition to biology he caricatures as an opposition probably to biological determinism. In addition, it makes sense to ask which science is being used for which political position and to show that interactive models of biology dispute the assertion that there is some natural body operating apart from its interaction with the world that not only secures the infrastructures of life or should and that the sex with which we are assigned gives no guarantee of the sex that we become. That gap between being called a sex at birth and becoming a sex in time is actually called life and time. <laughs> For categories such as sex and gender also have a temporal life, and the trajectory of historical categories intersect with our own life histories. Genocide in Palestine, and we have every right and obligation to use that term, is made possible by genocidal logics that states and world institutions have come to accept. The pushback deaths at sea, the death of migrants in detention camps, the suspension of all due process for those held in indefinite detention, along with the absence of adequate shelter and health care, all of this, too, we might say, is a form of state-sponsored death dealing. But as we know, there's also a replacement theory that runs through all of these instances. The Israeli state imagines that living on the basis of equality with Palestinians would mean the destruction of the Jewish state and hence the destruction of the Jewish people. 
giving up rights to demographic advantage for Jews will, in their mind, lead to the replacement of Jews by Palestinians. Sometimes they simply call them Arabs. Every vision of cohabitation in the region of equal citizenship of a state, whether single, dual, federated, that would put an end to colonization and, by the way, to uprising, is often regarded as nothing other than a threat to Jewish life. Radical democratic principles are, the Israeli state holds, a threat to Jewish life. And Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. That is the paradox. When gender-critical feminists and, the right and their right-wing allies, by the way, critical is also a misnomer. There is nothing critical about what they do. Critical relates to urgency, to intervention. It's not negative critical, as in critical theory is the inquiry into taking for granted presumptions in order to imagine a different world. OK, they're not critical. <laughs> and when they claim that trans women will substitute for them, or steal their identity, rob them of their maternity, appropriate femininity for themselves, they are also imagining being replaced by those who want the right to live in freedom without fear of violence, discrimination, and pathologization, with affirmative health care, shelter, employment. The great replacement theory articulated with such toxic force by Orban and Maloney alike figures the most vulnerable migrant washing up on the shore as a major threat to the nation, the family, and the very future of Europe. We might well wonder how such fantastical transfigurations can take place. We can talk about that another time, but for now, and in the time that remains, I want to return to this exhilarated sadism, increasingly shameless, that describes fascist excitation in our times, the excitement that accompanies the call to deny people of fundamental rights. What makes that call exciting? What kind of excitement is involved in making or sometimes receiving or reproducing that call? One reason I'm interested in this excitement is because it's enigmatic to me. We're used to charging governments and agency, agencies with indifference when they fail to protect the fundamental rights of people. In those cases, we consider those institutions to be unfeeling or cold, engaged in a lethal form of turning away. And yet, to say that cruelty is cold is not to say it is dispassionate. And in its contemporary form, at least, there is often a kind of self-righteous self -righteous passion that accompanies, say, the decision to let migrants die at sea, or perhaps a religious excitement about stripping people of their rights. Although they are not the exact same phenomenon, something intersects here, not exactly a joyous fascism, but an excited one, that takes hold and makes itself known when for instance, rights of parenting are denied when gay marriage rights are withdrawn, when reproductive justice is dismantled, when rights to determine sex assignment are proscribed. What characterizes the passions that I'm trying to describe is that they're felt as moral and lived as shameless. 
The moral dimension of their expression operates surely as a kind of justification for doing harm, but it's also the vehicle of their accelerated excitation. Those who ban books on gender from classrooms, take sex education out of schools, strip trans youth of affirmative health care, refuse to let the history of slavery be told, support the abandonment of migrants at sea, or their indefinite detention within camps or prisons, understand themselves as doing good, as restoring the good life, protecting that life, warding off a corrosive force, a possible harm, a force of evil. So it would be one thing to say that they do harm and then they supply a moral justification for doing so. That would be devious or hypocritical or strategic. But I think the situation is actually worse. They understand themselves as not doing harm at all, but doing good. And they conceive of rights stripping or fatal abandonment as activities that will help to restore a world they understand themselves to have lost. Sometimes that kind of argument goes even further. The only way to restore the good life, the natural family, including gender hierarchies, is through rights stripping or potentially fatal forms of social abandonment. These are measures that must be taken, the argument goes, to achieve or restore the good life or in the name of the good itself. To the extent that these measures are conceived as preconditions of the good life or its restoration, which is a step beyond backlash, right? then the very act of taking rights away or denying a group of people of the possibility of life and legal status becomes itself a good deed, an activity that realizes the good in the course doing what it does. <laughs> See, my, my sentences are simpler now. Sometimes they're still long. <laughs> but I'm working. I'm working. takes a lot of money to un, you know, disentangle a, a mangled mind, okay? So have some compassion for me, you know, it's not, okay. All right, sorry. So to understand this, we would have to understand the thrills of expulsion and dispossession coupled with the moralized right to turn away. So if one understands the harm one is doing to be morally right, to be justified in advance, to be bringing back the good life, then whatever one has to do to realize that end would seem to be justified. It is so, however, only if the means serves the ends. But if one does not realize that what one is doing is harmful, then there's no need to justify the harm. However, here a full transvaluation of values has occurred for those who have undergone this conversion. One is freed of traditional moral constraints and authorized to act in ways that would otherwise be called harmful with the full conviction that one's action is right or good, that it restores good to the world, or that it makes a bad world good, or that it safeguards the world against an impending and unthinkable destruction. If one says that this action that others call harmful is actually beneficial, then one has turned or reversed the meaning of words that name moral values. The problem is not just a generalized semantic confusion, since the conviction is passionate. 
And by passion, I mean not just any emotional state. Passion from the Latin links to suffering, but also to enduring. It's different from an affection that one can reflect upon in the mind. A passion implies being affected by something from the outside and undergoing that in a way that does not feel fully in one's control. A passion is something relatively ungovernable. The mind cannot master a passion. A passion always more or less governs the mind, leaving one both out of control and excited, excited to be out of control, excited finally to be out of control, ungoverned and ungovernable. Something lawless is in the air. Lawless, and yet in the name of a morality realized in deprivation and dispossession of others. Under this guise of morality, here comes the possibility of living in a lawless way, or to develop laws that consecrate that lawlessness, as when governments, through its policies and laws, not only stoke such passions, but recast them as moral mission or crusade. The law then becomes an instrument of violence. It becomes legal violence. The experience of what is right under such conditions becomes self-righteous moralism, and it permits of various kinds of cruelty in the name of what is considered right and good. It's actually not morality, which would have to explain the principles by which it acts. No, it is an excited moralism outside the law, now operating within the law, freeing those most besieged by hatred to do harm, to incite and circulate hatred in the name of what is right. But there's another element that is, you seem to be then fighting for the good at the same time that you're able to mobilize your des desire to destroy others, your long-standing resentments, or your newly incited forms of disdain. All this can happen apart from a fascist state or a thoroughly fascist society, for fascism begins as a trend, a potential. Thus, it is our obligation as critics to find and oppose those potentials before they saturate society and its state structures. We do not have to see a fully-fledged fascist state to say that fascist trends and practices are happening now when various vulnerable communities are targeted with rights-stripping, fatal abandonment to perilous conditions, and slow and quick forms of killing are becoming the norm assisted by exhilarated forms of moralism. But there's another element, and that is the production of an excited or contagious circulation of a phantasm. Whether it be the teacher who indoctrinates or grooms the student to be gay, the trans woman in prison who does harm, the gender theorist who assumes demonic form and attacks the laws of nature and the church, <laughs> the trans child in need of good care who threatens the core of the nation, the migrant or the colonized seeking to live in freedom, equality, and justice in a shared world who is figured as the most destructive force in the world. For those who are figured as threats to the people are by definition separated from the people. They're not considered part of the people, and as such, they must be disempowered, if not eliminated. They have no right to live in a common world, since only the people have that right. The common world is divided into the people who have such a right and those who do not, who are not exactly people. Hi, 
I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. The idea of gender has operated as an excitable concept. Good, if you weren't awake before. <laughs> you know, people need to be reminded. It's good. Very good, very good. The idea of gender has operated as an excitable concept. Many political campaigns now, as you know, target gender as a destructive force, even construe this gender as a threat to national identity and the natural family. The Vatican has added to this discourse by likening gender to a nuclear bomb, the Ebola virus, and Hitler youth. When gender is figured as a threat to humanity, civilization, man, and nature, when gender is likened to a nuclear catastrophe or a full-blown demonic power, then it's the fear of destruction to which political actors appeal. There is the ready and continuous fear of destruction, the source of which is difficult to name, which is solicited and spiked to fortify both religious authorities and state powers or their strengthening alliance, as we see in Putin's Russia, the Republican Party in the US, and various countries in Eastern Europe, East Asia, and Africa. The displacement of this fear of destruction from its conditions of production, we could name them, capitalism, climate disaster, systemic racism, carceral powers, extractivism, patriarchal social and state forms, all of which should make us very, very frightened of destruction. It results in the production of cultural figures and phantasms invested with the, fa with the power to destroy the earth and the fundamental structures of human societies. Precisely because that destruction is happening without being named and checked, the fear and anxiety congeal without a proper vocabulary or analysis, and suddenly gender or critical race theory are targeted as the cause of destruction. Gender, a category that describes the division of labor, the organization of states, the unequal distribution of power, has never been merely cultural, but it is cast that way by opponents who want to identify the source of the destruction at the cultural level. Once identified as a cause of destruction, gender itself must be destroyed. And what follows is censorship, the de-departmentalization of gender studies and women's studies, the stripping of rights of health care, increased pathologization, the repeal or rejection of laws that protect against discrimination, violent marginalization, and the erosion of democratic norms, to name a few. Let us remember that the killing of women, trans, queer, bisexual, and intersex people is a form of destruction actually taking place in the world as we speak. The killing of black women, black, queer, and trans people, the killing of migrants, including queer and trans migrants, all these are actually destructive acts happening in this time, our time. And as the numbers increase, it becomes increasingly apparent whose lives are considered dispensable and whose lives are not the inequality of the grievable makes itself known. 
once gender comes to include abortion rights, access to reproductive, gender and sexual health services, trans rights, women's freedom and equality, queer of color's freedom struggle, single parenting, gay parenting, new kinship outside of heteronormative models, adoption rights, sex reassignment, gender confirming surgery, sex education, books for young people, books for adults, images of nudity banned now in the state of Texas, I mean, the entire Renaissance collection is having to be taken out. <laughs> then it represents a wide range of political struggles that its opponents seek to shut down in their effort to restore a, an authoritarian patriarchal order for the state, religion, and the family. This is not just a backlash. This is a restoration project. The only way forward is for all those targeted to gather themselves more effectively than their enemies have, to recognize their alliance and to fight the phantasms prepared for them with a powerful and regenerative imaginary. Right. I, have, I always have too much, but I'm happy, to, I'm happy to give it up at the last minute. It's funny that I don't give it up before. Okay. <laughs> in considering the operative fantasies about migrants elaborated in support for xenophobic and racist migration policy, or the operative fantasies about women as child murderers in the anti-abortion movements, or those that figure trans women as cis rapists infiltrating bathrooms, we are encountering phenomena that are at once social and psychological. When fear runs through a population, when hatred is stoked against a concept, a phantasm, an idea, such as gender, that is said to wield the power of total destruction, then the tools we need to understand, deflate, and oppose such a movement are drawn from media with the power to occupy and defang the phantasm in the service of another way of imagining alliance. We need this way of imagining solidarity going forward as much as we need air to breathe for living on and living on together requires solidarity and a sense of living that includes and exceeds the basics of human life. If someone or something seeks to take away what we need to live, we begin to fight for survival, but fighting alone never gets anyone very far. The helplessness one feels recalls perhaps the primary helplessness of the infant and the clear insight that without supportive infrastructure, no one's life is livable. When the anti-gender movement says that gender will strip you of your sexed identity, they confess the rights stripping that they are advocating. They ask the public to experience the psychosocial fantasy of being stripped of a sexed identity by law when what is really happening is that trans people are asking to be able to assign themselves a new sexed status. And if they succeed in having a new sex status, it doesn't actually take away anyone else's sexed status. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> it's a malicious yet powerful inversion. The right to self-determination takes no one else's rights away. And yet if this freedom of self-definition is permitted, it is said the gender ideologues will strip everyone else of their primary sex assignment. Self-assignment, understood as a form of freedom, is thus twisted into a rights-stripping activity in order to justify the stripping of trans people of their rights. Similarly, queer families do not negate 
heterosexual ones. They just live next to them. They only dispute the inevitability and superiority of the heteronormative family form. Those who defend the family are being asked to accept a world in which families take various forms and to understand that they're living in only one such form. This is not a future world we are talking about, but this world, the one in which we live. It can feel overwhelming. How to call all of these inversions, these attacks on legitimate freedom, out in the most public of terms? Can the psychosocial dimension of new fascism become understandable in terms that everyone impacted will understand? Without that analysis, we cannot come to know how our most intimate fears and desires are woven into the social fabric in which we live, including the social ruptures and conflicts, those tears in the fabric that pitch us into precarity, whose exploitation we can only live through if there are others who refuse to let us fall. Okay. I think that, um, as I've tried to argue, this heightened focus on gender by the right deflects from the various social and political forces that are in fact destroying the world as we know it. Even so, we cannot conclude that gender is only a deflection from these other and more truly destructive forces. For gender relates to an intimate sense of lived bodily experience, a sense of who one is, and sometimes to an anchor that holds the architecture of the ego together. To be told that sex assigned at birth is not necessarily the same as a sex assumed in time is unsettling, only for those who want to think of their own sex assignment less as a legal act conducted in relation to codified norms than as an immutable truth of the self. Maybe some do live gender as immutable, as immutable, and that is surely acceptable as long as the assumption is not made that everyone lives it that way. To derive from that experience of an immutable sex assignment a theoretical generalization or a universal rule is to impose a cruel falsehood on those who are living gender differently. And yet gender is presented as frightening, not only because it exposes that what was once taken to be immutable is actually mutable, but because if someone else can engage in gay sex or sex reassignment or enjoy sexual imagery that one denies to oneself, then the other is living out what feels to be an impossible human possibility. That denial becomes a requirement of selfhood. And so those lives over there, the other, they are living out what one has established as unthinkable. To make them unthinkable means that they cannot be imagined. So when they do appear, they appear as phantasms with the power to destroy a heteronormative self or its architecture, we might say, that has grounded itself on the denial of these potentials. Of course, trans people can be thinkable and imaginable by those who do not follow the same course in life. The same applies to abortion or with lesbian and gay sexuality. But for some, once those issues become the thinkable, public, and imaginable, they do not appear as possibilities, human possibilities that others may pursue, but that maybe I don't, but rather as monsters, phantasms, aimed at destroying the self, convenient catch-alls for the world's catastrophes. The foreclosure of these issues leads to their return in paranoid phantasms, and under certain political conditions, 
those phantasms can be circulated to gain support for movements that target gender and promise to restore patriarchal orders that thrive on vibrant and toxic tautologies. Sex is sex, and no debates or challenges allowed. If you'll permit me my final, my final paragraph. <laughs> I've suggested that the right wing is um, correct to fear destruction. Maybe we're all fearing destruction these days. There are many powers that are destroying our world, our earth, but gender is actually not one of them. We should be able to name the fear that courses through them by naming devastations inflicted, as I've said, by capitalism, production, extractivism, and climate disaster, to name just a few. In thinking about our own strategies of resistance, it's crucial that gender politics oppose neoliberalism and other forms of capitalist devastation and not become their instrument. That gender politics militate against the continuation of colonization and all forms of racism, including those afflicting migrants, and that it takes its stand within expanding alliances. It cannot be an identity politics and still create the world in which we all want to live because it is by virtue of our interdependency that we stand a chance of surviving and flourishing. Can we make alliances that reflect that interdependency with both human and non-human life, one that will oppose climate destruction and stand for a radical democracy, informed, yes, by socialist ideals? And so I would just say as well that we have to also live if we're going to have a transnational alliance in a multilingual world. So I think I'll end by reading a message that Veronica Gago sent to me. Translation is a way of thinking about the politics of alliance in a transnational register. Translation operates as a form of reappropriating violence, ideology, and structure as those zones problematized by feminist, anti-extractivist, and popular struggles in such a way as to produce transnational alliances. Gago cautions against the reactionary alliances that so-called trans-exclusionary feminism makes with the right. Thus, political translation implies a dispute, a struggle, body to body, over vocabularies and forms of political composition. And in alliance with me, Gago writes that gender is an uncomfortable, multilingual, and relational glimmer name, a name that sends off sparks in many directions of the worlds that we want to build. And I think to build those worlds, quite frankly, um, we have to make truth sexy again. <laughs> I really do. I think that you know we have to the opposition to right stripping, to fascism, to accusations of wokeism, we have to have a different version of humanity and cohabitation that would be more desirable than any fascist illusion, right? More desirable. So making truth sexy, making equality, freedom, and justice des deeply desirable and, and freely imaginable. And for that, we actually, we need our sociologists and our political scientists, but we also need our artists and our poems. Thank you.
somehow to say thank you to you both feels um, underwhelming. <laughs> I think I'm caught listening to both of you between the beauty um, that you hold so close and that you are compelling us to reach for and uh, generate in our own lives and in um, the world more generally, um, that I'm caught into the beauty with which you tell that story and that necessity, and at the same time, the ways in which what you're charting is so devastating, um, the ways in which you describe devastation, uh, the excited moralism, the shamelessness, um, the crisis of imagination, um, so um, so effectively and with such care um, that it's um, that those feelings of grief that that um, I'm feeling as I listen to you um, and that I'm seeing as I look out uh, onto you all in the audience where. Um, it looks to me like, like me, uh, everybody wants both to weep uh, and to cheer at the fact that the two of you are here to guide us. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to ask each other uh, any questions that you have following your extraordinary interventions. Um, or any responses that you have to one another. Um, would you like to... I want to ask that? you about the poem. <laughs> yes. Um, I do have a translation. I just didn't read it out on purpose. That's um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but what if, but is po it, can poetry be revolutionary for you? Yeah. 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 Um, so th this is... Um, poem which I think has traveled across South Asia. I've heard it in Tamil, I've heard it a lot in India, in Pakistan, um, and it's basically about, you know, there will be a time when we shall see um, the day that has been prophesied, the one written on the tablet of fate we shall see, when the insurmountable mountains of oppression shall blow as if cotton flakes and beneath the feet of us common folk. This land will throb with a deafening sound and upon the heads of the despotic folk. Lightning will strike a thundering pound, we shall see. I'll give the rest to you to read. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, and I, I just have um, two comments to make. Um, you know, the thing um, you said about queer families do not negate heterosexual families, heteropatriarchal families. Um, I think that there's a very um, good sort of example um, that we see in the Khwaja Siraz community in Pakistan where um, they have their own kinship networks um, and which is basically um, the elder trans person is, takes the position of a guru, which is a mentor or a teacher, and then the rest of the, um, you know, the younger trans people are taken as, as chelas, which is the students, and this is basically a relationship where they teach the younger people the ropes of life, um, and, you know, by taking them in, and it's very interesting that in the past, and even now, a lot of the cis women who are um, dispossessed or, you know, who are running away from their home found refuges in these kinship networks of the Khwaja Sira families, and I think, um, you know, it, it, I, can, I could relate 
uh, when we're talking about it. I think in, in some cases, maybe those other families that we're talking about, which is trans families, queer families, um, are also something which we desperately need. Um, and I think that's, that's where, you know, when I talk about radical compassion, I think that's where we have to think about it, that it's the utopia is queer. Um, and I think some of us realize and the rest of us will realize in the times to come. Um, also, you know, the, when you said the gender politics has to oppose imperialism, colonialism, and not expand it, and I think this is so, so important, and this has been historically very, you know, has been misunderstood because the ideas of feminist politics has been used against the women of the third world. Um, and I mean, they're also used within, against us within our own countries as well. It's not just, you know, the imperialist feminists who've done that. And I think it's so important um, that we expand the boundaries of feminism. Um, and this is something we've been doing in our organization. We've expanded the boundaries of feminism. Feminism is no longer, for us at least, just about a certain kind of politics for women. Um, you know, it, it, it talks about um, patriarchy, it talks about class, it talks about gender, um, it talks about climate change, and I think that's, that's where it really is at. Um, we have to expand the boundaries of feminism to bring in as much as we can um, so that it truly is a feminism for all. Yeah. We're going to open up for questions. Um, I'm going to collect um, three questions in the first instance, then I'll do another round. I'll also ask for questions from uh, people who have joined us online. Uh, and uh, Violet, you'll read uh, those out. Of, yeah. Um, a plea. Please ask a question. <laughs> Please keep it short. Right? Lots of people, nobody gets to ask two questions. Um, introduce yourself, um, but then ask a question. Uh, a very short question. If you ask a long question, I will interrupt you and cut you off. <laughs> okay? So, um, don't mess it, with her. Yeah, don't mess with me. Um, because we want to get as many different people participating as we can, uh, and we also need to be able to remember the questions. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, so let's, um, can I just have a, a, a sense of a, a number of, oh my goodness, yes, of course. Um, so we'll start with, um, uh, I see at the front. I see lots of people. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is a remarkable evening. Thank you to both speakers for the intellectual and political passion, if I can say that. I have a question about passions, trying to bring two contributions together. How do we uh, prevent ourselves from falling for fascist passions? If we are to recognize the potentiality of these passions hold on each one of us, how do we not reproduce in what we are to see, as uh, Faiz's poem says, the reproduction, whether through law that employs violence in the name of producing the good or serving the good, how do we address those within our movements in the alliances we make? Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm Aicho Chubukchu from LSE Human Rights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I saw somebody with a pink uh, hat uh, uh, there in the middle, uh, but towards the back. Uh, I'm Sadia Hide, uh, Masters of Sociology here. Um, but I was just thinking about, you said about uh, radical democracy and also about this pursuit of rights and this opposition to rights stripping. Um, and in organization, not opposed to that. But I worry about the potential for the reinforcement of the validity of the idea of democracy and also the idea of the legal injustice systems that don't operate in, in service of the people that are seeing this right stripping. So I wonder how far the radical uh, imagination um, can take these ideas and how you how you reconcile them with, yeah. Could you just say the second part of that question again? Because I didn't catch it and I don't think. I guess overwhelmingly, just the question of like, how do we reconcile ideas of um, radicalism with and the radical liberation of my marginalized identities with uh, rights and democracy and all of these ideas that have historically not served these communities. Oh, okay. Your question is to one of us rather than both of us. Um, please name us, otherwise it causes a little bit of confusion. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much. I'm Vali. I'm a PhD student at Edinburgh Sociology and I'll be a visiting fellow at Harvard University. So my question is how should we innate and practice the possibility of a kind of everyday resistance of gender politics? under the authority structure of years of protests and gathering, even the visibility itself is impossible. Thank you. So your question's about um, the importance of gender poetics and how to enact it, yeah. Um, I, I take it that, um, well, first of all, uh, fascist passions do work in part because they're exciting, but they're also deeply permissive. Like you're suddenly able to do destructive things that were uh, previously prohibited. So, um, and I think the way in which um, the anti-woke discourse works is to um, figure the left, the feminists, the um, uh, the the young people. Uh, especially uh, as super egos who are just going to stop you from talking a certain way or make you talk a certain way or um, are going to police you or your behavior or, you know, that we get identified with um, prohibition or police. Um, we're feminazis, whatever we are, okay. Um, and I think that they get to um, colonize liberation. Like they're being liberated from this repressive force. Um, so we actually need to reappropriate those terms, like what is true liberation? Like go right into it, you know, not, and not someone like me, some, someone like her. Right? You know what I mean? Really serious in, in organizational terms, in terms of public media politics. Um, you know, how, how do we make what we're doing into desire, hope, imagination, liberation, freedom, um, uh, and, and show that those terms are really on our side. Because we can't say, okay, we're always gonna be less exciting than the fascist. No, it's not true. 
we have a long, a long uh, history of sexual politics that makes us exceedingly exciting, and we need to be able to show that, and it needs to be part of any renewal of the left. So I think affirming sexual politics at the center is, is extremely important. Um, and our connections to one another and how passionate they are and how enduring they are. Uh, and we, can, we, we do show that in our, our alliances when they're working at their best. Uh, so that's part of it. I, I, I think it's one thing to uh, oppose rights stripping because people who lose rights of citizenship or rights um, to health care uh, or rights to mobility, let's say, in the, uh, the, 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 the gay, lesbian, trans free zones in, in Poland, I, I'm hoping those are, are being phased out now. Uh, under the new regime, someone can tell me. Um, right stripping is a way of exposing people to brute force and to police force and to state violence. So it doesn't mean that I have some view that rights are at the center uh, of my politics or that rights are sufficient for politics or that human rights are sufficient for politics. I don't think you can turn it that way. But I do think um, that it would be a mistake to have a radical critique of rights that stops us from being opposed to rights stripping that puts people's lives at risk. So it must be part of any uh, uh, radical political project that we might accept. I know there are certain people who don't believe that democracy or radical democracy is sufficient for a revolutionary horizon, but I'm, I'm still uh, uh, I'm still there with the idea of radical democracy. Um, that's a longer, um, it's a longer question. Um, a question of gender poetics. I I do think uh, we need to make, uh, uh, we need to to continue to make and remake the world. And I I, I take that to be an act of poesis. Um, we need to bring about for, forms of cohabitation. Uh, human and non-human life um, that are, are not just livable, that, uh, but that allow us and allow the world to regenerate in ways that further realize um, principles of justice and freedom and equality. And I think there is a poetic dimension to all uh, radical politics in that way. We're not just trying to fit into an existing world. We're trying to, to, to make, to, to make a, a better one. Uh, that's maybe a naive thing, but maybe it's okay to be naive sometimes, yeah. Kevin, um, just, just commenting. Um, I, I also feel like, you know, when we're talking about, um, when you talk about radical democracy, I think it's also very important that when we fight for all of these other rights, which are very, very important, um, I think we forget um, that we also have a right to pleasure and joy. Um, and I feel like that is, the, because we are, we've been so dehumanized by the system um, that we keep forgetting that, that that is also a basic right. That is what makes us human. 
Um, and I think that is also part of this radical liberation that we're talking about, that let's also fight for those rights, um, which, which don't seem to be so important because we're living through such dark, terrifying times. And I think it's, it's, it's revolutionary in these times um, to fight for our you know, rights to joy, um, rights to, right to pleasure, um, right to just have fun. Uh, and I think that's, that, that should also be part of our politics and that will also make it easier for us to fight, um, like you said, you know, ma making it sexy. Mm. Uh, I think we first have to make it sexy for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> and stop being so boring about the fights we fight. <laughs> so I think, yeah. Yeah, if it's not sexy for us, it's not going to be for anyone well, else, is it? Maybe. <laughs> you probably have some Emma Goldman things to say yeah. about this. Yeah. yeah, you should be speaking That's to true. this. <laughs> yes, we need, yes, the Emma Goldman reference being um, the need to have dancing yeah. at the heart of revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, another round of questions. Yes, uh, well, um, have people been sending them in, um, Violet? Okay, let's, let's take two online questions. Fantastic. I've got a question from Heather Benjamin, who's joining us from the US. I'm wondering if you could speak to the ways anti-gender actors are using anti-Semitism as one of their new wedge issues to mobilize around. The mass defunding of feminist movements for standing in solidarity with Palestine as an incredibly harmful example of this trend. And any opportunities you see to address the unholy alliances being formed by, quote, otherwise progressives and far-right ideologues. Okay. Second question from our online audience. From Ironin Jefford Franks. How do we face these challenges in a post-truth world? We see this in trans policy work, for example. Evidence and facts don't matter anymore, despite the other side always claiming they're on the side of science and facts. And one in the audience, uh, right uh, over there, um, shaved head. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is, I guess, primarily a question to Professor Butler, but particularly in the context of what was just discussed about radical liberation, you mentioned a few times this idea that, like, as trans people or as people living in queer families, like, we're not a threat to cisgender gender identities and we're not a threat to cis heteropatriarchal family structures and I suppose my question is like ought we not try to be like <laughs> everyone in the audience is warming up <laughs> um, just trying to see if I I have a, a choice quote from Georgia Maloney um, <laughs> among my pages. Uh, let me uh, say that at the moment, I mean, maybe some of you saw when Georgia Maloney was um, on the campaign trail um, to uh, gain political power in um, in Italy, uh, she uh, she went to uh, southern Spain. She spoke with the Vox Party, and um, she 
she made a series of associations that I think could help map the, um, the, uh, the phantasmatic scene of contemporary fascism. She also spoke in a fascist tone, uh, kind of screaming in a, in a monotonal way. Um, that was really frightening. Um, she, she opposed the ideology of gender because it was dedicated to the disappearance of women and the death of the mother. Um, and she called on women and mothers to rise up and fight back. And immediately after she said that, um, she went into a, a vicious caricature of North African migrants abusing children. So the idea of um, uh, uh, motherhood being destroyed, women being destroyed, um, turned to migrants uh, uh, abusing children. Um, and she then said uh, quite clearly um, toward the end of her remarks um, that gender had no place in Italy and neither did Goldman Sachs. And I thought Goldman Sachs, a financial institution she didn't want to be beholden to, worried about financial autonomy of Italy. Uh, but why, why did she choose Goldman Sachs rather than Citibank? Uh, right? And I did think that there was an anti-Semitism there that's running through. And at least in France, there have been some critics who claim that gender is an export of American Jews. I don't know. I called Gail Rubin. I said, is this, are they talking? Are they, are they talking about us? What's happening? Uh, anyway. What did she say? Well, she, oh, she's, she's totally, uh, she's alert to that. But, you know, I don't know. Uh, so, no, there, there is some, like, oh, this is a Jewish foreign infiltration thing. So I, I think that that, that is there. Um, and we probably need to mark it as such. Um, uh, we are rattling, we are rattling to the core heteronormative family structures. We are rattling them to the core. But the, what they don't understand is that they want to be necessary or natural or universal or normative. And they don't get to be that anymore, which means that in their existence, in their lived ways of organizing their family, of being a father, mother, whatever it might be, they are not occupying a universal position. They just happen to be one fairly traditional way of organizing kinship. And that is a, a deep cut. It's a deep uh, deflation. Um, and they, what they have to lose is the belief in their supremacy, their immutability, their necessity, their, their universality. And that is a big loss for them. But they're going to have to grieve that loss. And that's what we're telling them. Grieve that loss and enter into a better world with the rest of us. I don't know. What else was there? There was something else. Uh, too, but do you want to? Uh, so there was also some. Uh, there was a question uh, online about um, post-truth uh, oh, and facts? the nature of evidence. Oh, yeah. um, but. Please do respond to any of the no, questions no. that have been raised. Um, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> um, but but I, I think 
I mean, I don't, I don't think truth is subjective. Um, I don't believe in that. <laughs> so we believe in truth, you and I. Yeah, okay. so I, I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I don't think truth is subjective. There are some truths. Um, and in Urdu, there's this thing we say, haq mojood, tada mojood, which basically means there is truth, and it's always there. Um, so for me, I mean, there are some truths which are not subjective, which mm. won't be subjective, which are universal, which will remain so. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to respond mm. to this. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea that science is based on facts is a, an interesting idea. It's, a, it's a basically a positivist view of what science is, a collection of facts. But um, depending on which science we're talking about, certainly in biology, there are several different frameworks. There are different methodologies, uh, people have some extremely interesting contemporary arguments in developmental uh, and, and interactionist biology right now. So anybody who studies those fields, are, they're not just collecting facts mm -hmm. and putting them in their pocket and walking away. They're actually looking at frameworks, methods of experimentation, way, ways in which um, the, the theory that you use, the methodology that you use, in part, configures what, what is observable to you. How how presuppositions are built into various kinds of hypotheses and how to be more rigorous about hypotheses. So mm -hmm. studying science involves a lot of interpretive work. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are better and worse ways of doing it. And we can see that people have been uh, selectively using uh, a certain kind of um, approach to science uh, to claim that others are unscientific. My favorite example is on the Sex Matters website where uh, they object to new publications in journals like Nature, which is like extremely, extremely well respected, that talk about sex variation and um, they claim it's unscientific and yet their claim is not refereed by any, anyone or anything. Uh, they, it's a dogmatic assertion of what science is or should be, rather than an actual interrogation of what's happening in the science of sex determination, in, uh, in, which is a very rich field. Happy to talk about it. Invite me back, and we'll do that. <laughs> Uh, last uh, round of questions. Oh my goodness! Um, just uh, thinking of um, three. So starting here in, with the um, pink shirt. I've got a pink thing. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, my uh, question is for P Professor Butler. Um, I'm, I'm, my name is Teresa. I'm University of Surrey. Um, my doctorate was on the female masculinities, um, early histories. Um, my question for you is have you ever thought of your work in terms of the benefits for survivors of conversion therapy and violence? And I ask you this because this is how I have used your work. Um, um, no, no. No, no, it's good. No, this is an important is that, question. No, uh, for the first 21 years of my life, I was subject to extreme violence and conversion that had a catastrophic impact on my identity and how I understood how that was undone and destroyed. Yes. And I used your work in reverse to understand the damage of that. Well, I'm very glad. I'm glad that it helped you in any possible way. And I think, you know, as somebody who 
I, as I was uh, telling a reporter the other day, I never came out because there was no um, practice of coming out when I realized that I was, uh, uh, at that point, I, I, I guess I called myself a lesbian. I knew there was a word, but the only other person was Sappho, and she lived very long ago. <laughs> No, so it was it was a bleak scene, you know, me and Sappho. Okay, so anyway, no, so, but poetry is important. Okay, it's not it's not without benefits. Okay. However, uh, what what I want to say to you very seriously is that um, I do think that um, uh, that there's enormous damage done, especially to young people. Um, not just in the days when I was a kid, and there were, I mean, the deep fear and deep sense of stigmatization and a fatal life was something instilled uh, at a very early age. Uh, but, uh, and, I, and there was also the prospect of a conversion therapy for me. Luckily, they sent me to the wrong psychiatrist who thought I was fine. Um, but. It is, a, it is one of the most soul-murderous um, practices in this world. And it is now on the rise again. Uh, and it is being recertified again throughout several states in the United States um, as a way to keep children from being gay or trans or whatever. So um, you know, it is just so deeply painful to me that the attack on, on trans politics and trans lives so often takes the form of saying they are uh, harming children uh, or they're grooming children. The attack on gay and lesbian and uh, bisexual uh, education or the inclusion of those topics in education, that, that's going to harm children. But what they do, um, especially in conversion therapies, um, is so manifestly harmful. Uh, and they, they, they do it with this idea that they are stopping a harm from happening, but it is exactly that logic that, that accelerates harm in the name of stopping harm. And it is young people who suffer. It is, it is young people who suffer more than ever. And if I have given you any reprieve or, from that, then, I, uh, then you've, you've given me a gift. Uh, sorry, and my daughter is also trans and queer, okay. so it didn't quite break, but it was, yeah. Thank you. Uh, There's a question in the front row over there, um, cool glasses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hi, my name's Ronnie, I'm a PhD student in the sociology department. Um, I basically had a question about, um, I liked that you brought up dance because that's something I'm looking at in my research. Um, I'm trying to make this really fast because I hate when people talk for too long. Um, so basically what I'm interested in is the idea of, when you said desirability or desirable, trying to make the politics desirable, I immediately hear desirable and start going, oh my gosh, like desirability politics and, and the horrors of that and the bodies that get discarded because of it. And, so I'm thinking about, um, actually this is a question for Tuba as well, um, how we can create, um, you know, in this idea of like moving away from act 
activism to organizing? How do we prevent this kind of um, desirability that is really harmful that ends up being so neoliberalized and allows certain people to become the face of a movement and then the movement to become absolutely nothing? Um, how do we change that from you know, the flashing pictures and into like a stable movement? Yeah. Thank you. And one right at the very back who, who's had their hand up for half an hour. <laughs> um, thank you, Professor Butler, because um, um, I've read your book since I was like 18 now, 10 years later now, like, you know, it's, it's transsexual here. So, because um, um, you mentioned a lot, um, I, there's so many questions about us. I don't know, it's methodologically or semantically, but I want to think about, because um, um, family abolition is a big part of the trans-Marxist or Marxist feminist praxis and serialization. Um, have you, but I feel like you haven't really engaged with um, such a, a family abolitionism in your work, but I just want to see, you know, an imagination of each other taking care of each other. Um, how do you think about such a do you think this such such um, strategy or ta tactic would be possible within currently really monetized um, and tonalized um, kind of social relationship because because gender is such a social relationship isn't it because it's about how we put into different social distinction how being put into the function of capital, but also a kind of the alienated pressure, uh, press pressure like, um, you know, the transsexual pressure to be comfortable you are. So I keep using this term because for me, such a distinction is really hard and especially doesn't apply to Chinese contact because, um, and also I don't think such distinction is useful in currently because um, people are claiming about Sex is just sex, gender is just gender, but you have mentioned about sex is happening always been gender in like 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah, it's all about, yeah, sorry, so much long question um, about um, how you see family abolition in your work and in kind of mass organization strategy. So, thank, thank you. Um, to answer your question about um, desirability, I actually meant it in a I, I think it came across in a very different kind of way. What I meant was that, you know, um, in our politics, what happens is that we talk a lot about what we are anti. Um, you know, we're anti this, we're anti that, we're anti that. Um, what I was trying to say is that we also have to kind of go beyond this critique and actually create uh, what we really think is the utopia or is is that world. And I think that that. For me, that can happen through you know the kind of strategies you employ in your politics, not necessarily putting one person on a pedestal, not in a neoliberal kind of way, but also um, you know practically demonstrating what you're for, what what is the, that world that you want to build, and that could also look like you know um, if you're against a certain kind of you know the exploitation of workers, for example, if that is what we're against in the neoliberal system, then what are the cooperative models that we need to build? How do we make work look good by creating those uh, cooperative models for workers and basically practically demonstrating through our organizing, through our work, the kind of world we want to inhabit? Um, so that is what I meant by doing this kind of work where you make this politics desirable, where you can demonstrate um, rather than just you know talking and critiquing and 
um, standing against things, but also demonstrating what you're standing for in very practical sort of ways. The question was also about maybe, could you say a bit more about the distinction between um, activism and organizing, which I think was also part of that. Super interesting. Um, yeah, um, there's a very interesting article I read, read on the Baffler. It's called Against Activism. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so I, for me, I, I think I, I personally um, feel that, you know, I, I've seen this in a lot of young people, especially like millennials like myself, um, that there's this, and we are impatient, I think Gen Z more than us, <laughs> but I think, I think that there's that impatience which I see uh, is what turning a lot of young people towards activism and not organizing. Um, and, you know, we want immediate sort of results, we want things to kind of like, you know, whatever we are struggling for, we want to achieve something immediately. And I think it's, it's that patience. Because um, what happens when you're organizing is that you, you have to sit down with people. You have to sit down with people you might not like very much. And I don't mean in terms of like you'll have to sit with, you know, capitalists, but like your own comrades uh, you might not agree with. Um, and I think that that is what organizing really is. Because in the, the kind of politics I do. I think it's, it's, it's a question of humanizing the other, but in the process also humanizing yourself and restoring your own humanity. And I think that that's what is lacking. With activism, um, we, we kind of show up one day and the next day we feel, you know, I've, I've done my part. I, I don't need to do this again and again. I've been there. I've raised, risen my voice. There were enough people. Okay, I felt charged. Um, and I, I, I think that's the easy work. That's very convenient. Um, same goes for, you know, calling out someone, for example. We call out someone, and we're like, okay, I've done my job. But we've not held them accountable. We've not gone through building processes of accountability within our movements, within our organizations. And I think that is the kind of work I'm talking about, which is long-term, which requires a commitment, which um, needs you to show up again and again, perhaps every day. And I think that kind of like everyday politics is what, what I talk about when I'm saying this distinction between activism and organizing, that I don't um, have to show up for Palestine one day and next day I can just get my beauty sleep. Um, but you know, like, show, and I completely understand uh, activism um, and the organizing burnout. I, I get that too. I've had that for a very long time. I'm a recovering activist sometimes, I say. Um, <laughs> But I also feel like that that, that commitment is what, what's missing right now. Um, it's very much about, you know, you show up, you rage, there's some outrage, and then you're back. While I think what's happening with the right wing, that they're organizing. I mean, in Pakistan, um, they have huge networks, huge networks. They're all connected to each other. Um, they've got this, these huge NGOs. They've got these welfare networks that are working. And when I look at the left wing, we, we barely manage anything. Uh, because there are not enough people. People will show up to protest, but they will not show up to the boring meetings, which, you know, which go beyond um, just showing up for that actual event day. Um, so yeah, that's what I meant by organizing and activism. Mm -hmm. I'll be brief. I think um, we have to say, um, that the desirability discourse to which you referred is, um, I, I take it, a, a neoliberal one that is 
um, individuating, like how can you make yourself desirable, um, uh, but also uh, market-driven or driven by market values, right? How can you sell yourself? How can you become, how can people click in the right direction, you know, toward you or whatever it might be? Um, but I think, um, so the question is how then to uh, liberate desire from desirability. Um, and I, I think you've given us the, the clues already, right? It would be anti-neoliberal. It would not be individuated. It would be desire that, that we generate and circulate among those who are trying to build a more uh, equal, free, and just world. Um, and it would also be anti-market. It would have to be an anti-capitalist kind of um, uh, excitement uh, um, uh, that would distinguish us from the fascist uh, from the from the fascist forms, which unfortunately can sometimes also be uh, uh, we weirdly anti-capitalist. Um, so, uh, but but that that's a struggle, right? Because we're we're formed. We're, we're situated in this world that's telling us all the time, you know, what is desirable and what is not. And we're also, that also means that we feel ourselves not to be desirable or to be monstrous or to be outside of that circuitry in ways that can be quite, quite damning or, uh, or quite disturbing. But um, in collectivity, you know, I mean, the collection, the collection of monsters that I would bring together uh, <laughs> would would be establishing different forms of, of desirability and not norms that would be imposed on one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, desire should be about discovering something you you didn't expect that's not packaged for you in in advance. Um, uh, so I think we we need to we need to radically fight for the reappropriation of stolen terms. Um, and I think that's what Gago uh, was telling me in her, mm. in her message. Um, I also think, um, uh, well, Engels was crucial for, um, as we know, for the whole history of socialist feminism and um, certainly gave me along with a number of feminist anthropologists, uh, a distinction between family and kinship. Um, and the insight that uh, mobilized me as a very young scholar was um, that what we call uh, the nuclear family, presumptively heteronormative, is but one arrangement of kinship, and that kinship is a broader term. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.